Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Welcome to Session 7 on the Life of Christ. We are fast approaching the end of our study. Today we'll be looking at two topics. The first is conflict with the Pharisees is found in Matthew 22 and 23, and the second is the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24 and 25. So join us as we begin today's study. Let's go ahead and uh, get started. Father, thank you for this night you've granted. Thank you for a gorgeous day out and for bringing us safely out here tonight to study your word. I pray that you grant us insight and understanding. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, let's go to Matthew 22. And um, we, got, we got the heathen NIV text over there. The NIV text. Okay. Um, don't let Chakisi. Don't let Chakisi know. I know. Yeah. Um, See, I'm not a member there no more. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It was. Uh, I read my Sword of the Lord, and I guess they have this big conference, and one of the freebies is some guy wrote a a book called NIV, the Antichrist Bible. So that's the free book that they're giving out to everybody. So. Yeah. Places I've heard him make reference where they left out a word. Yeah, in most cases they should have left out the word. Um, Matthew, what was that? Matthew twenty-two. All right, and uh, one of the one of the things about this particular course is, of course, we can't cover every point of Christ's life, but I'm trying to cover the high points and give you some stuff to hang things on. And we talked last week about, or we started out about Christ's conflict with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he really had conflict his entire life with them, mainly over what? Sabbath. Sabbath. I mean, that was the big one. And closely behind that is probably tradition and their hypocrisy. But constantly fighting over the Sabbath day. And, um, of course, because he healed on the Sabbath, they wanted to kill him. It never occurred to them to question why or how did this man heal somebody. All that mattered to them was he didn't do it their way. He didn't do it according to their way of thinking. And because of that, they wanted to kill Christ. They wanted to destroy him. And, of course, this reaches its great climax in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we have the account of Christ after the triumphal entry, of course. He's come into Jerusalem, and um, he's, he's really going to confront them here. He's really going to confront them. And in Matthew 22, well, let's, let's go back. Um, let's do this. Let's go back to 21. And we'll, we're just going to work our way down through the text here a little bit. Matthew 20, 21. 
Christ enters Jerusalem, and um, let's look at verse 23. What we have here is we have the conflict that's going to really culminate in the arrest, the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 23, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I'll ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Then why did you not believe him? If we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all behold hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What was their great bugaboo here? What was the problem with the Pharisees? What did they want Christ to tell them? Why was authority a big deal to them? They're supposed to be leaders in the authority. Where, where are you getting your authority to come in and crash our party? What gives you the right to come in here and, and teach things contrary to everything that we're teaching? Where do you get this authority? And Christ, of course, turns the question around on them. And so I'll make a deal with you. You tell me if John the Baptist, was he a prophet or not? Give me that answer, then I'll tell you by what authority. And Jesus knows them because they're trapped, right? Because all the people thought of John the Baptist as a great prophet, but how was he accepted by the religious leaders? He was an oddball, a weirdo, right? He wasn't part of their group. The problem is anybody who was not part of their religious establishment and group was by definition in error. That's how they saw it. It threatened their power, it threatened their prestige. And of course, how did John the Baptist describe him when they came to his baptizing? When the religious leaders showed up, what did he call them? Hey, here comes the snakes. Yeah, here comes the snakes. Who warned you all to flee from the wrath to come? Call them snakes. Call them vipers. And then Christ begins to give some parables here. He has a parable in verse 28, Matthew 21, 28, of two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, that's a no-brainer question, right? The one who went. They said the first, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Oh, ouch. Ouch. All right. What was so ouch about that is that the religious leaders thought themselves to be the holiest people in the land. And who were the unholiest people in the land? Tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were the absolute worst. You couldn't go much lower than them. Right. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when he saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. John came preaching the gospel, and the people who were the sinners, the people who were the wicked, what did they do? They repented and believed him. 
And what did the religious leaders do? They rejected him. They did not listen. They did not, in this parable, go into the vineyard. And he gave another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This was common. What happened is a wealthy man bought some land, built a vineyard, and what do you expect to get out of a vineyard? Wine, grapes, produce. All right. He built a, uh, a wine press. He built a place to stamp out the, the wine. And he built a tower. What was the tower for? Protection. And then he went away into a far country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent to his, his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now, what did he do? He lent out his farm, his thing, to tenant people who were to take care of it and give him a fraction of the produce. All right? And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. How did they respond to the servants who came to get the produce? Not well. They beat them, killed them, stoned another. And again, they sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So he kept sending servants. What happened to all the servants that went? They kept getting beat, killed, stoned. Finally, he sent his son, saying, Surely they will respect the, my son. And when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is an heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. That was a law in the land. If, if the master, if the owner of the land died without an heir, it would go to the tenants. Yeah, so they said, Well, we'll kill this, the son, and then we will get the vineyard. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, who's the they there? The religious leaders. He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said, have you never read the scriptures? Ow! I mean, this is hitting them right at their pride level because what did they pride themselves on doing? No Oh, you bet it. I mean, no. you really frost somebody, an expert, when you say, don't you read, can't you add? That's like going to Einstein saying, what's your problem? Can't you add two and two together? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable these his parables they perceived that he was talking about them well they got that right so what's the point of this parable how do you interpret this parable right What's the grand picture? The grand picture is, what did God do with Israel? They were rejected from that point on. Israel was rejected, but what initially, starting out the story, what did God do? God chose His people Israel, right? Yes. And He protected them. He built a wall around them. They were His people. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is called the vineyard of God. So they knew, they knew the imagery He was talking about here. This was pretty evident. And then He lent this vineyard, which is his people, out to tenants. Who are the tenants? What's a tenant supposed to do with the vineyard? 
So who was to take care of Israel? Priests. The leaders. The religious leaders, the priests. They are to care for the people. And when the time came for some fruit, what's fruit here? What, what fruit are we looking at here? And in this, in this parable, what fruit is it? What's fruit seen? It's the fruit of what? Godliness. Yeah, repentance, godliness, holiness. And who did God send to Israel to see what was going on? Prophets. prophets. And what did they do to all of the prophets? Killed them, beat them, stoned them. I mean, look at the Old Testament. and It's like Christ said, you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Finally, what did God do? And what did they do to the son? Killed him. So what's God going to do with the vineyard? What's God going to do? He's going to kill those tenants and he's going to give it to someone else who will bring forth the fruit. Okay. Now this is very important here. This is a very important concept. Let's, let's, let's go up to 20,000 feet. Right now in Israel, who are the religious leaders? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, that group. Christ is going to be crucified. He knows that. Nobody else has caught on yet. He's going to go away. And so what does Christ need to establish if he's not going to be here? A new leadership. Who is the new leadership? The Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is, but... No. The apostles are the new leadership. Christ has to transfer the leadership, the spiritual leadership, from these losers to the disciples. They're the new leadership. That's another reason the bell of the temple was rang. Right? And that is why the whole sacrificial temple system was done away with. There's got to be a new leadership. There's got to be a new, new way, yeah, new way of doing things. And what Christ needs to be able to do in the minds of the people is he's going to say, there's a new leadership to follow. The disciples. Not your religious leaders. Who have been rejected. Why? Because they do not represent true Israelite religion. They do not represent the faith. They have created a false system of belief that I'm going to destroy. In fact, not one stone is going to be left upon another that's not going to be ripped down. Christ did not come to reform Temple Judaism. He came to get rid of it because it had been so corrupted into something that it was never intended to be. Can I ask a question? Yes, sir. The premillennialist view looks for eventually for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, correct? Yes. And what will be the purpose for a temple? In the, it will, in the end, during the tribulation, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, I believe. Um, it will be an attempt to reestablish the Judaism religion, which we know right now is what? 
It's past. It, it, it is past. All right? It, it's over. All right? But Israel doesn't know that yet. That's, they're still God's people. And what does Antichrist do partway through the tribulation? Well, he desecrates the temple. He sets himself up as God. All right? And we have all the stuff that goes on in the tribulation. Christ, of course, comes back, destroys the Antichrist. But this is interesting. Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is a very interesting passage to look at. Um, a lot of people have a real hard time with that. Ezekiel 40 through 48. Yeah. Because in Ezekiel 40 through 48, it talks about the temple. But the temple it talks about was never seen in history. It talks about the land, the, the full land grant to Israel that God gave them. Never seen in history. So many premillennialists would say, well, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is talking about the millennium, the kingdom. And in that case, there will be a temple in the kingdom. Now, immediately you say, why? Why would there be a temple in the millennium? And, and of course, if you have a temple, what else do you have? Sacrifice. Why? <coughs> this is debated. This, this, you, it's it's debated. Why, why, what possible reason would there be, and I think there's a good reason, what possible reason would there be to have a temple and sacrifices in the millennium? Because Christ didn't cover somebody. No. Sins are covered. Sins are covered. So whatever the sacrifice is, it's not what? It's not efficacious. It's not to take away sin. It's not to cover sin. So whatever the sacrifice is, it's not for that. Well, no, if you have... A, God would not have sacrifices without a reason. What reason possible? Yeah. What possible reason would would there be for sacrifices they in the millennium? What possible reason would you have? Well, I think I heard it said once. Second chance. No second chances. Mm. I heard it said once that it was like uh, you, you could say it was kind of like to remember what the world was like before, like the thousand year reign. Yeah. Like remember, like, I think that's what it would be. Yeah. Well, think about it. Let's say you were born 600 years from now. Middle of the millennium. What's it like in the middle of the millennium? The lion lies down with the lamb. Um, peace. Um, prosperity. Um, God himself in the person of Christ is ruling from Jerusalem. There's no war. Right? There's none of that going on. So, how would you relate to the stories that people told you of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of dying on the cross, of being our substitute for sin? How would you relate to that? Well, in a perfect environment, it'd be tough to relate to that. Would it not? Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have any context, and really, you're living in a in a land where there is no death. You don't see wars. You don't see slaughter of people. You don't see. You might you might know about it, being told about it, but there's 
Look, there's a difference between hearing about something and seeing it. Yeah. Right? So you can hear about the Holocaust all you want. Right. Until you have seen it. But until you see it, until you stand there, until you look at the photographs, or in the case of the army, until you're seeing the rotting bodies on the ground, yeah. you don't understand. It's still it's all stories. Yeah. It brings meaning. And I think that's what you see in the millennium. I don't think it's a sacrifice of efficaciousness. It's not to forgive sin. But I think it will be a strong memorial and reminder, a visible reminder to the world of what sin is. Because they're not going to relate to it in the same way we would. Now again, a lot of, lot of discussion on that. and you can, It's beyond our scope here to study that. But, but you have to do something with Ezekiel 40 through 48. That's, that's a tough, knotty problem. In fact, that's one of the reasons that many people wanted to exclude Ezekiel from the canon because they had a rough time trying to understand what's 40 through 48 all about. And I think the, the way out of that conundrum, and, and I think it's a consistent view, is to see that as the millennial temple, as a future coming temple. And that whatever sacrifices you have are memorial only, much like communion is today, right? What, why do we take communion? Yeah, it, it, there's nothing efficacious about it unless you're a Catholic. There's no grace conferred to you through it. What is it? As often as you do this in remembrance of me. Because we need, as human beings, we need that remembrance. You know, and if you think about being a 10 or 11 or 12 year old child in the millennium, having never known disease and starvation and death like, like we are familiar with now, and being taken down and seeing your sacrifice there at the temple where that little lamb is slaughtered and being told because of your sin this is a memorial of what it costs God to redeem you it would make a strong impression on you so that's the short answer you have to study that out there's there's a lot of discussion on that all right but the point here is what Christ is what is Christ saying I'm going to take away the stewardship of the vineyard and give it to someone else, right? Because you guys have not taken care of my vineyard. What have you done? You've killed the prophets. You've killed the son. You've rejected the son. He told him he's taking the kingdom of God away from him. Right. They're not, and by taking the kingdom of God away from them, what is he telling them? They're not part of. Yeah, you're not part of the kingdom. Because earlier on he said who got into the kingdom before they did. Yeah. So he's not getting rid of the kingdom. Right? He's just saying you're not part of the kingdom. You're not part of the kingdom. And uh, of course that frosted the chief priests and the Pharisees. And although they were trying to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. So then we get to chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, no brainer. Who's the son? Who's the king? God. All right, see? Very easy. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. 
Wedding feast was very important in those days. I mean, it was a big thing. And when the, the king's son got married, that was a real big deal, you know. And so the time comes for the wedding feast for his king's son, and the king sends his servants out to tell those who are invited that the wedding is ready. Now, in those days, if you were invited to the wedding of the king's son, that was a high honor, right? Right. But they would not come. What is this? What is this? Because they would not come, what is this? What are they doing? Rejecting the king. Yeah. Rejecting the hospitality is a pretty serious offense. Yeah. This was a serious offense. This was this was a social no no. When the king invited you to dinner, you went to dinner. All right? Especially if it was his son. Why? Because you're honoring the king and you're honoring the son. And by not going, you're basically saying, I reject your leadership and I reject your son. This was, this was, this was serious stuff. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited... See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Dinner is ready. All you got to do is show up. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. What did they do? They just ignored the invitation to the kingdom, to the wedding feast, in this case. And what's the wedding feast the picture of? No, it says right in verse. It says in verse two. What's the wedding feast a picture of? Kingdom of heaven. Yeah, it's 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 a picture of the kingdom. Right. Yeah, that's what it is. And he's sending his servants out, saying, "Hey, everything's ready. It, it's it's come, come." They paid no attention. And while, while the rest sees his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Wow, not only did they reject the king's invitation, but they killed the messengers. Now look, this was something, if you were the average first century Jew, you would be horrified that people would dare do something like this. We read this and we don't think anything of it. Look, this was an act of treason to do this. This was not just, I don't want to come to dinner tonight because i got something else going on. This was an act of treason when you rejected this. So what happened? The king was angry and sent his troop and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Well, of course he would. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those... Invited, we're not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out in the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay, what is this a picture of? What is Christ picturing here? That's a church, Well, it, it is a veiled, it is a veiled. Reference to the church, it is. All right? But let's keep the kingdom of God motif here. All right? 
because going to the Gentiles. yeah, going to the what what did the king sent his son? The marriage feast is ready. What's the marriage feast a picture of? The kingdom of God, and it's all set. It's all ready. All you have to do is show up, and the people who were originally invited, who were the Jews, didn't want to show up. When the time was ready, they didn't want to have any part of it. And not only that, but they actually killed the servants that were sent. And so what did the king do? He, ha he has a big dinner ready. What is he going to do with all the food? Well, let's go get people in the highways and the byways. Let's go get all of them. The good and the bad. What's that a picture of? Didn't matter who they were. If you were walking down the byway or highway, you were invited in. If you accept the invitation, then you were in. All you got to do is then come in. Yeah. There was another stipulation for those three months. Yeah, there was. <laughs> but 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 the point here is that the king, the 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 ones who originally were invited, are now excluded from it. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. What's this? Well, what is the wedding garment? Okay, in those days, if the king threw a party, not only did he throw the party, but he sent somebody over with a tux for you. He gave you the, the, the clothes to wear. Why would that be necessary? In this case, why would it especially be necessary? Because you want everybody to look a certain way. All right, but who who's he getting to in there? Grabbing the bums and riffraff, and they certainly don't have a tux. All right. Nice enough to be. Absolutely not. So the king provides not only the meal; he's providing the clothes. All right, and in those days. If you were to go into the presence of the king, what clothes did you wear? The best clothes. Yeah. We talked about last week, if the president invited you over for dinner, you certainly would not go in with jeans and cutoffs and, you know, unshaven. And I mean, you, what'd you do? You'd, you'd, you'd dress up a little bit. You wouldn't be a bum. And, of course, what's this guy? He's speechless. What does it mean that he's speechless? There's no excuse. The king provided not only the meal, but he provided the clothes. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What's this? A picture of. A picture of hell. Well, what do you think they are? Whose righteousness? Yeah, certainly not the righteousness of the one coming into the meal. You're given the righteousness. You're given the clothes to wear. And you see, this is a common Im this is a common common image that we're not making this up. We're not pulling it out of the air. You look at Zechariah um, chapter three, where you have the vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord in manure-covered garments. And he's, those garments are taken away and he's given a change of clothes. You look at um, Paul in Ephesians 5 where he wants to present the church as a chaste virgin without spot or blemish. 
You look at Revelation 19 where the church is seen as arrayed in fine linen, white, which is the righteousness of the saints. It's a common metaphor. We understand that. But this guy somehow thinks he's going to come into the kingdom dressed like what? A bum. Yeah, now it doesn't say here that he was dressed as a bum, does it? No. He didn't have the, the right clothes on. He might have had nice clothes. He might have thought his clothes was nicer. Yeah. But that wasn't the point. The king provided the clothes. Yeah. And what did the king do? The king said, we'll throw him out. He's excluded from what? The wedding feast, in this case, he's excluded from what? The kingdom. All right. The king has had enough of this rebellion stuff. See? And here's the point. When you come to the wedding feast, who's, on whose terms do you come? You come on the king's terms, not your terms. That's the point. What's, what's, picture, what's Christ trying to picture here? He's trying to picture, look, I, God has created a wedding feast for you. A time of celebration, which is the kingdom. You're all invited, but what did you do? You didn't want to come. You ignored the invitation. Not only that, you ignored a double invitation. And then some of you even killed the prophets and servants that were sent. You would have nothing to do with the king, and you have nothing to do with his kingdom. So what does the king do? He destroys you, and he takes the invitation, and he gives it to someone else who comes in. And even those people who come in, what do they have to come in as? They come in on the king's terms, not their own terms. You guys have been excluded from the kingdom. Is he being prophetic when he said that he sent his army and killed them and destroyed their city? Because Basically, that's what happened in 70 A.D. I think in this image, what one of the things you want want to be a little a little careful of when you do a parable is try not to try not to make all the elements mean something. I think that's just part of the story. Now we understand, of course, that you know there, there's going to be that judgment, but I don't think Christ has given this parable to portray the judgment. Does that make any? Did I just make any sense on that? Yeah, he has a real reason of doing the parable. Not this parable is a real story. Right. Don't try to make so. every point of the parable match something in the application. Okay, that's the point. Okay. All right. Well, the judgment came. Judgment did come. The principle that he's telling is judgment is coming. Yeah. If you reject and treat shamefully the servants, what's going to happen? The army is going to come and destroy you. Now we understand. Technically, when is that going to happen? At the end of the age when the angels come and cast out all the things that offend. We, we saw that in that the parables of the kingdom. Basically, it doesn't preach parables. They don't usually tell parables like that. You know, just like you just broke it down. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the way it should be taught across the pulpit so people could understand. Is that why they never really preach it? Yeah, because what you can do is you can take a parable and make it mean anything you want. All right. What the parable? The parable parables are intended to teach a singular big picture item. All right. Now there there's some supporting ideas around it. All right. But what's the big picture item here? If you fly up to twenty thousand feet, look down on this parable. What is Christ basically saying? It's about the kingdom. Don't reject the king. 
don't reject the king. I mean, the people who were originally invited don't get in. The people who were not invited do get in. And if you go back earlier when he's talking about the tax collectors and publicans getting in, or um, prostitutes getting in, who are the people on the highways and the byways? Well, they're the tax collectors and the sinners. They're the ones that get into the kingdom while you guys are excluded because you wouldn't come. You didn't want to have anything to do with the king or with his son. And in verse 14 he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? That a lot of people who think they're going to get in is not going to make it. The ones that think they were saved or not believers think they're... Okay, how would you interpret that passage? What's the three most important <coughs> concepts in that passage? Hermeneutics 101. Context, context, context. What is the context of that statement? The parable, right? Go back to the parable. What, what, who were called in the parable? Who are the ones that were originally Jews called? Were called? Yeah, the Jews were called. The Jews were called. Many were called. Yes. How many people wound up at the wedding feast? None of them. A few. No, many were called. The, the invitation went out to the ones on the highways and the byways and the original right. recipients of it. But how many people actually wound up in the kingdom? Few. few. Many are called. Few are chosen to get in. And in this context, why? What was the difference between the called and the chosen? What did the chosen do that the called didn't? They chose and went. They went. And they went on whose terms? The king's, the king's terms. terms. Yeah. Now we can make a big Calvinistic statement out of this. And I think there's underlying there's some credence to that. But I'm going to go strictly with the context. This is what Christ is saying. The invitation went out to a lot of people, but not everybody gets in. Why? Because they rejected it. They didn't want to come on God's terms. And that's always the way it is with the kingdom. The, the, the thing that Christ is teaching about the kingdom is that you come on the king's terms, you don't come on your own terms. You go his way or you don't come in. So their rejection caused the rejection. Yeah. Not to be chosen. Yeah. So it wasn't a forethought that they weren't going to be rejected, or they were going to be rejected. Yeah. You, you can't teach predestination election from this verse. I believe in predestination election outside of this verse. But but you don't go here to preach that. Does that make any sense? I understand what you're saying. Because that's not what the context here would tell you. All right? I think the Greek word underneath it is elect. Is elect. So Jesus has just done what? He's just roasted these guys and said, you know, your problem is you think you're part of the kingdom. You guys aren't in the kingdom. You were invited, but you didn't want to come. And you said you wanted to be there, but you rejected the king. Well, the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners and the prostitute, what did they do? They believed. They're going to get in there before you guys do. 
Now, now at this point, the Pharisees and the religious—they're really frosted. They're, they're, they're angry. They're, they're angry beyond angry. They're, they're incensed. So how can they deal with Christ? If you were in their shoes, what would you want to do? Kill him. Well, Can't kill him world. right now. Oh, well, they got to strategize. You got to strategize. Put your heads together. What do, you, what, do you, what do you need to do with Christ? How do you neutralize Christ? They need they destroy his credibility. Destroy his credibility. Yeah, you got to do that. If you can destroy his credibility, you can win this game yet. So you got four groups here that hate each other, but they hate Christ worse. So they come together to try and get rid of him. I tell you, they turn the tables in a week. So, Pharisees went plot how to entangle him in his words and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. By the way, the Herodians they hated. What, who were who the Herodians? Who did they support, do you think? And the Pharisees hated Herod, but they hated Christ worse. Okay? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. No, they were not the religious group. They were the supporters of Herod. They they were the collaborators with Herodian dynasty. And why are they mad at Jesus? Well, Jesus is threatening the kingdom. I mean, Power. yeah, if the Romans come in and overthrow the government, who who, who goes first? Yeah. Herod. They're just happy with yeah. status quo. Status quo. So they, they sent their disciples on the Herodian saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anybody's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. What is that? It's, it's starting to get really deep, right? Pull up the old boots, trying to butter him up. By the way, Christ saw right through this. He knew what they were up to. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why did they ask him that question? Why that question? Well, if, get, if he could say no, it ain't right. Then they've got him on treason. Right. And what happens if he says yes? Then he's going to upset the people because they don't like Because the people right. despised taxes and Rome. They despised it. Their hatred of tax collectors was, we don't understand just how much they hated them. So they're trying to get Christ on, you know, if he says yes, he's in trouble. If he says no, he's in trouble. And they think, we've got him now. We've got him now. How does Christ answer them? Well, he says, uh, go get a coin. Jesus aware of their what? Wickedness. Wickedness, their malice. Why do you put me to detest you what? Hypocrites. By the way, did the Pharisees want to pay taxes? No. No. But they're trying to trip Jesus up. So show me a coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. What's that? A day's wage. A coin. And Christ says, well, whose image is on this? And they said, Caesar's. 
And he says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. What's the answer here? How does he answer it? Well, he pointed out that they give tithes to the church, or to the priest, to the temple. Mm -hmm. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So, should you pay your taxes? Yes. Yes. But what do you not give Caesar? That which is God. And what were, what would that be? The first. Well, in those days, what were you supposed to do as a Roman citizen? Oh, you were supposed to uh, worship Caesar as God. And Jesus says, no, you don't do that. You give God what is God's, you give Caesar what is Caesar's. He basically said Caesar is not God. Right. So he doesn't tell the people, don't pay your taxes. But he tells them, look, you need to give Caesar what is his. And you give God what is his. And he's dealing with the Herodians by, not, by saying, no, you should pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is rightfully his. Give to God what is rightfully his. Of course, that gets them upset. When they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. Why do they marvel? Because this was something they argued about all of the time. And they didn't have a good answer for it. They would sit around all day long and argue about whether they should pay taxes or not. And Christ here gives them the answer that they've missed. Who's the next crowd? The Sadducees show up. By the way, did the Sadducees hate the Herodians? Yeah. Did they hate the Pharisees? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fought all the time. Mm -hmm. Say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. What's that? The law of leveret marriage. In those days, it was very important to pass on the family line. So if a woman marries a man, he dies, the next older unmarried brother is to marry her and raise up offspring for his son in his son's name, to bear the family name. Yeah. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother, so to the second, the third, down to the seventh. And after them all the woman died. Now if you were number five, what would you be thinking? There's a kiss of death here. I don't know. Yeah. So they set it up. Well, here's a, here's, a, here's a woman who went through seven brothers. So in the resurrection, whose wife is she? They said, we got them now. Well, they don't even believe in the resurrection. I know. They don't. But they're, tramp they're trying to say, what they're trying to do is show them how ridiculous the concept of the resurrection is. It's ridiculous. They don't believe in angels either. So that's ridiculous to believe in a resurrection because it doesn't make any sense in a resurrection. Who would she be married to? She's had seven husbands. She can't be married to them all. It's ridiculous. They only believed in the first five books of Moses, by the way. That's all they believed in. And by the way, I want you to understand, the Pharisees and the Sadducees fought on this all the time. 
And how do you know that? Well, when Paul was before the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees were there, what did he do? Remember what he did? Probably stirred them up. How did he stir them up? He got them talking on the resurrection, and the whole thing broke down into a big fight. Between them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For they all had her. And Jesus answered and told them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures, the scriptures nor the power of God. You idiots don't even know your own Bible. Ouch. Look, there, there are certain people you do not intellectually battle with. One of them is God. You lose. He said, you guys, you're ignorant because you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What does that mean? Human, the human relationships that we have down here, the marriage relationship, is not an eternal relationship. It's for this life. It's for now. What's it going to be like in heaven? It's going to be something far more wonderful. Now, this sort of blows the Mormon concept of eternal marriage. See, in the Mormon church, if you go down to the Mormon church and you take your vows in the Mormon temple, you're married not only in this life, but in the life to come. All right? Look, the Bible... And by the way, what is one of the major... Not the only, but what is one of the major reasons God gave marriage? For what? For companion. For companion, but what... Procreation. There is no procreation in heaven. No children, no children are being born in heaven. There's no need. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read which was said to you by God? Didn't you guys read your Bible? Now, if he's going to quote scripture, what scripture does he have to quote? got a quote from the first five books. First five books. And he said, and, and what did he say in verse 32? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if you're the average Pharisee, your jaw would about hit the floor right now because Jesus Christ just nailed them. What's he saying? When God, when God talked to Jacob, what did he say? Jacob... I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why was that significant? Because he's not the God of the dead. If they were dead, he wouldn't be their God anymore. Because Abraham and Isaac was dead at the time. Yes. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac. I am the God. So if he's the God of Abraham and Isaac at this time, what does that imply about the existence of Abraham and Isaac? They're still there. And you can bet that the Pharisees were just loving this because they have been arguing with this forever with these guys on the resurrection. And Christ in one verse proves the resurrection in their own scriptures. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished. Why? Because they have been watching these Pharisees and Sadducees argue about this from until the cows came home 
and no one, no side ever went, and Christ comes in and says, well, what about blah, and the whole argument is over. He, 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 he destroyed their argument here. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now the Pharisees, okay, so the Sadducees have been shut up, the Herodians have been shut up, the disciples of the Pharisees have been shut up. Now the Pharisees got to get in on it. So what do they do? Yeah. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest, great commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What did Christ just do to all of their laws? <laughs> Tossed them away and boiled it down to what? Now how can you boil... How can you boil all the law down to those two? One word. If you love God, everything falls in the line, doesn't it? If you love God, you're not going to take His name in vain. If you love God, you're going to spend time with Him by keeping the Sabbath. If you love God, you're not going to make a graven image. You're not going to have other gods before Him. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to kill them. You're not going to murder. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to covet what they have. It all goes back to love. This, this, was, a, this was a monumental discovery of mine, I don't know, many years ago, when all of a sudden it hit me, wait a minute, we key in on all the commandments, all the rules, all the stuff, and we go crazy trying to figure out all the different rules of what we can and can't do and should and shouldn't do. And if you just say, wait a minute, if I just love God, all of this stuff falls in the line. Not only that, but the purpose of our being is to love God. Yeah. So God has put it in us to do it. He's made it a possibility for us to happen. And if we're truly seeking Him, it is what it produces in us. You win by losing. You gain it all by giving up it all. You save your life by losing it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the opposite of what we're told. Yes. And again, I use the illustration. I don't have, if you go to our house, I don't have rules on my refrigerator about how I treat Donna. Don't hit her, don't beat her, don't slap her. <laughs> I don't need those. Why? I love her. If I love my wife, I'm not going to mistreat her. I'm not going to treat her badly. I'm going to treat her with respect and dignity and love. She sums it up as this two phrases. Yes. Yeah. But Christ is saying, love the Lord your God. So what has he just done? He shut them all up. Because what did they do? They argued all day long on what was the most important commandment to keep. What's the, what's the one you have to keep? I mean, if you have to keep one commandment, and why did they argue about having to keep one commandment? Because they realized what? 
they had, they had some they weren't keeping. They couldn't keep them all. And so some of them got to the point where they say, well, if you just keep one commandment, that's okay. And better yet, if you just intend to keep one commandment, even if you don't keep it, that's good as keeping it. Because even they got to the point where they understood, look, we can't keep it all. And Christ says, look, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything takes care of itself. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What is Jesus going to do now? He's tired of being grilled by these guys. So he's going to ask them a question. Saying, Who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Messiah. What, tell me about the Messiah. Whose son is he? And of course, what would they say? Why? No, the Pharisees had them all. Oh, just from the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Why do they call him the son of David? They knew his lineage was supposed to come from David. Right. Old Testament. Old Testament, uh, the Davidic covenant. What's the great Davidic covenant? I'm going to send one of my descendants on the throne who will rule for ever. ever. Psalm 89, a great messianic psalm. Not only that, we have Isaiah, a, a, a root from Jesse. Who's Jesse? Well, that's David's father. Everybody knew that the Messiah would be descended from who? David. So what do they immediately say? Well, David, duh, of course. So I said, okay. Then how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If he's the son of David, how can he be David's superior, superior Lord? Uh, <laughs> that really got him. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Why couldn't they answer it? Now, we understand how to answer that question. How do you understand that? How do you answer that question? Is Jesus the son of David? Yes. Yes, in the sense of his humanity. humanity. Yes. No, in the sense of his divine, divine deity. We understand that. Romans 1, 4, he is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead and declared to be the son of David by what? His birth, his death. He's both. But see, they didn't understand that. They didn't understand the concept of Christ's deity. They didn't get it. Because what did they see the Messiah as? A political ruler. And not only that, he was one that would pat them on their religious little backs for being such godly people. And they totally missed it. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is confronting the opposition. 
What's the opposition trying to do? Discredit Jesus. Why? Because if they discredit Jesus, they can discredit His ministry, they win. And Jesus doesn't let them do that. So how does Jesus respond? Now it's Jesus' turn to talk. Where does He do this, by the way? This is in the temple courtyard. What, what, what's going on in the temple courtyard? How many people are in the temple courtyard at this time? Oh, it's wall-to-wall -wall people. This is the Passover season. Everybody and their brother is there. There could have been easily 100,000 people that were listening to Christ talk here. And what does he do? He said to the what? Multitudes. Multitudes. He's not talking... The time to talk to the Pharisees is over. They had their chance. Who's he going to talk to now? The people. Why is he going to talk to the people? Yeah, because right now, who's leading them? Heretics. The heretics. So Christ has got to give them the blinds on their way to the ditch. The true, yeah. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. And by the way, he's saying this in the presence of the religious leaders. He's not hiding. This is not, this is not, this is not politically correct speech here. He's not pulling a Joel Osteen on Larry King live. I don't know. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. What's Moses' seat? The place of authority. This was the seat in the synagogue, the place of authority. They sit on the seat of Moses. You need to do what they tell you in the sense of when they preach the Word of God, you need to do it. But don't do what they practice. Don't live like they live. Don't live like they live. Why is it? They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They lay great spiritual burdens on others, but they're not willing to do anything to help them people. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Why is it they act the way they act? Pretense, show. They make wide their phylacteries, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What is that? Well, the Jew was to wear a fringe on their robe is what? When they're fasting? No. It's part of their dress, part of their garb. They were to wear a, a hem around their garment. What did the Pharisees do? Made it really big. What's a phylactery? Sent in boxes where they put the scripture. Yeah, they put the boxes and they would have it on their hand or on their forehead. And they'd wrap it and hold it there. And they made they didn't have just little phylacteries. What do they have? Really big ones. So you, they would stand out. They would stand out. Because what were they doing? They were doing it for, for pretense, for show. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. What do they like? They like the place of prominence. They like the honor that goes with their supposed religious standing. You you know people like that? Mm -hmm. They're most of the preachers in the kind of churches you go to. Mm -hmm. 
Sorry, I had to put that in. That's what's wrong with I like what Howard, you know, Howard Hanks says, you know, I hate going to potlucks. Everybody wants me to pray. It's like, can anybody else here pray? Why do they have to have the preacher pray all the time? Can anybody else pray? That's because the preachers think nobody else can do it. Yeah. They think they're the only ones that God talked to. Yeah, that's that's silly. Some people are really mad. Uh, like I said, a lot, a lot of our old church left and we switched pastors. The old pastor, at the, uh, whenever we would do communion and stuff, he did all the prayers. Um, he would always pray the same prayer, read the same mm -hmm. scripture. But then when our new pastor came, people were all upset because he was allowing deacons to pray over communion. They were all upset, and people left the church over it. Yeah, they had the formula changed. Yeah. What are they like? And greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi, doctor. Being given honor. Christ told them, now who's he talking to here mainly? Now. He's talking to the crowds, but who's the, who's the ones he's... Really king in on. No. 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 One group you haven't mentioned yet. The disciples. But you guys are not to seek that. You're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you're all what? Brothers. Brothers. Church I grew up in, we called everybody brothers, sisters. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father in, in, who is in heaven. Well, the captains called them people father. Yeah, that's right. My, my, my kids took their baby out of school because they, they made them mm -hmm. call the priest father. And my daughter-in-law said, no. Mm -hmm. He said, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Mm -hmm. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What, okay. What is the first contrast here between the true spiritual leader and the false one? And the true leader is a servant. Amen. Yes. When you look at the true spiritual leader, we look at true and false. And this is the what is Christ doing here? He is drawing the distinction between who is the true spiritual leader, who is the false. The true spiritual leader is characterized by humility. Right? What is the false spiritual leader characterized by? Pride. Pride and arrogance. Okay? So, let me, let me and I'm, I'll tell you how this works out. I, I turn on TBN and I can handle about two minutes of it and I get sick to my stomach and want to throw up. And um, saw a guy there. You ever see Frederick Casey Price? Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. Out of California. How does he come across? That he is it. He's the most pompous, arrogant person on the planet. He talks to them just like they dog. False teacher. He, he talks to them like... Uh, like they're stupid or something. You know, I mean, he literally talked to there he them. Is. Like there he is. There he is. He's supposed to sit there and listen to that. There he, he is. He got about 6,000 members. How about Benny Hinn? Well, I never heard that fool, so. Well, that's good. <laughs> Pride. Arrogant. Being called doctor. Given the accolades of men. I told you about going across the San Bernardino Mountains. Mm -hmm. And hearing, finally getting a, a radio station here to talk about 
some Christian of the Year award they were going to give to some guy. And they were waxing on about what this guy did and how great he was and one of the greatest Bible teachers of all time. I mean, it was going on and on and on for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Finally, they called him up, Rex Humbard. I about drove off the side of the mountain. You know, um, listening. These people are filled with pride, with arrogance. They want uh, jet planes. They want the Lincoln Continentals. What is the mark of a true spiritual leader? Humility. He's not out for his own. He's not out for the accolades. He's not out for the glory. He's not out for the attention. What did Christ say? I preach Christ and Him crucified. And by the way, I have this treasure in a clay pot. So I'll tell you what, you want to find out who the true spiritual leader is, who's the false. Ask yourself, are they proud? Are they arrogant? If they are, they're not the true deal. They're to be, they're to be shunned. Why? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Damn you, scribes and Pharisees. That, that's the Schaefer translation. That's what God Christ is saying. Hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of God in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What's one of the characteristics of a false spiritual leader? What's the next one here? Leading people astray. They close the doors to the kingdom. Right? Not only do they want to not go in, but they don't want anybody else to go in. How do you close the doors of the kingdom? False teaching. False teaching. You come your own way. You come on your terms. And he's saying, I'm going to damn you, damn you guys, because not only do you not go in, but you prevent other people from going in. And he, Christ pronounces a curse on them. Go to the wide path. That's what they do. You know, there could be a lot of sincere people that go to those <coughs> churches, you know, like yeah. Joel Osteen's church, mm -hmm. or Rex Humbard, or, you know, the Crystal Cathedral, who really are thinking... They're doing the right thing, and they believe what they're being taught there. Yeah. Only to find out eventually the hard way. So what does the true spiritual leader do? By contrast. What should he do? Open the door. Open the door to the kingdom. How do you open the door to the kingdom? You invite people to come God's way. If you want to think about it, this is the narrow way, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what is this? Broadway. The Broadway. The Broadway. Many people find it. And then he says here, uh, he says, uh, Woe to you, for scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much child of hell as yourself. Wow. What is he telling them? 
You're influencing people to be just like you. Not only just like you, but worse than you. Worse than you. This is influence. Oh, they got it. They understood exactly what he said. What does the, in contrast, what would the true spiritual leader do? First Timothy. Teach what? What kind of doctrine should he teach? Sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. And that's healthy. That's the word there. Healthy doctrine. Okay? We had a vision meeting in our little church last Sunday. And, uh, you know, we're talking about things we're wanting to see done and, you know, attract people to church and stuff. And, and I told him, I said, you know, we're going to teach. This is hopefully is going to be our perspective. What did Jesus teach and what does the Bible say? It's, I'm not looking for Baptist distinctives. I'm not looking for uh, Presbyterian distinctives. I'm not looking for any particular dogma. We want to know what Christ taught and what the Bible proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And a girl asked me last Friday, said, are you guys non-denominational? I says, nope, we're anti-denominational. <laughs> yeah, we're not blind. We're not non. We're anti. We're anti-denomination. Yeah, there's one family, one body, right. one church, one God and Savior. Yeah. Can I make you a candidate for not helping people? Yeah. I never liked denomination. Nope. Too much power to it. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or that, or the temple that made the gold sacred? What is this? What, 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 what is he hitting at here? Well, he's hitting right at how they live. What they've done. What, what, what is this? What is the false spiritual leader teaching people to be here? Deceptive. Deceptive. What's another good word for that that begins Lies. with H? What's another good word that begins with H? Yeah. He said, you, be, you teach them to be hypocrites. What, 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 what is this? What, what, what exactly is Christ saying here? He's saying, well, you guys say, if somebody makes an oath, if he swears by the temple, he can break his word. If he swears by the gold on the temple, he is what? Bound. All right. What makes the gold on the temple any different? Than anything else. It's the temple. And he says, if you swear by the altar, it doesn't mean anything, but if you swear by the gift on the altar, you're bound. Wait a minute. What's the problem with this picture? What are you missing? You're creating, you're teaching people to be hypocrites. Making rules so you can break the rules. Yeah. What is the character of a true spiritual leader? Yes is yes and no is no. Mm hmm. Unhypocritical. In fact, if 
if you go to Timothy, it says, pure, what is it? A good heart, what is it? Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned or unhypocritical faith. That's what's healthy doctrine is. If you teach healthy doctrine, you're teaching people to be unhypocritical. If you say yes, you mean yes. If you say no, you mean no. None of this stuff about creating loopholes. Be a person of your word. You guys are leading people astray. You guys are blind guides. What's the problem with a blind guide? Now, in those days, people understood this. Blind people had to have what? A guide. He said, you guys are blind guides. What is that? That is ludicrous. How can somebody who's blind lead you? You can't. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.